You're listening to Environmentally Speaking, a weekly podcast diving into legal matters surrounding the environment, public utilities, energy, zoning, and permitting laws in Rhode Island and the surrounding areas with your host, Marissa Desitel. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of Environmentally Speaking. Hi everyone, I'm Marissa Desitel, an environmental attorney in Rhode Island. And I'm Clarice, who has taken a week off and barely remembers how to start this podcast. Well, you did a good job. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. This week, we are excited to welcome a special guest. We have Mark Guerin, who is joining us today. He is a senior director of collateral risk services at a top 15 financial institution with a national commercial lending footprint. He's going to explain what all of that is in a couple of minutes. In this position, he's responsible for the oversight of real estate appraisal, environmental risk assessment, flood insurance, and construction management function. He is, Mark, would you say LED accredited or do you say L-E-E-D? What's the lead? lead. All right. Wrong on both. This is why we have Mark. (laughs) Not lead is your third choice, though. <laughs> That's right. He is lead accredited professional, certified regulatory compliance manager. He's a member of the ooh, the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors oh. in a commercial property practice and a state designated real estate appraisal trainee. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining Hi. us. No problem. Thank you, Clarice. Thank you for, uh, for the invitation. Uh, happy to talk with you today. Um, you know, as Clarice said a minute ago, um, I'm responsible for the collateral risk function at a national, uh, or should say a regional lender, but we do have a national commercial lending footprint. I'm generally responsible for the, as Clarice just said, sort of the real estate appraisal function, uh, environmental risk assessment function, construction risk management, if we're we're doing some construction lending, flood insurance function, and a couple other things that you don't care about for the purposes of today's discussion. I I thought it might be sort of, might get something out of, might be valuable to sort of discuss at a very, very high level. You know, if you're coming to a commercial lender with a real estate secured deal or you're representing, you know, a client that's coming to the bank, they need to get financing, you know, whether or not that's acquisition financing or maybe refinancing another bank's debt, financing somebody else out, we're going to be the takeout lender. Um, Sort of the things in general that you would be dealing with or the questions that a bank should be asking in that context. Now, again, this, we're not talking about consumer lending, retail lending. Um, we're not talking about single family, you know, res- primary residence here. Yep. We're talking about industrial property, warehouses, retail, office, gas stations, senior living facilities, you know, five plus multifamily, things like that. And, you know, properties like the one behind me in my, in my background. I, I think it's important to to acknowledge and recognize, you know, when you're coming to a bank, when we're talking about these types of of due diligence practices, it's it's quite consistent across banks. And the question, well, why is that? Well, it's consistent across banks because a lot of this stuff is driven by federal regulations, regardless of whether the bank's regulator is, you know, the FDIC, the OCC, uh, the Fed, who is your prudential regulator? Well, they're all sort of singing from the same hymnal, so they're basically doing the same thing, you know. Things may be a little bit more or less prescriptive, depending on what aspect of due diligence that you're talking about. 
Um, just for example, you know, appraisal and flood insurance specifically, very, very prescriptive regulatory requirements. So I don't care what bank you're going to, you're pretty much doing the same exact thing or should be doing the exact same thing. Uh, when you're talking about environmental, though, or maybe you're talking about construction, you know, there's regulatory guidance out there that banks are supposed to follow, but the guidance is not certainly not as prescriptive as appraisal and um, and flood insurance. So it does afford banks a little bit more flexibility to do different things on a transactional basis. So, Mark, you you mentioned a um, that's a no, that's an excellent lead in. Um, thank you for that. I. But for the audience's sake, Mark and I have been working together for, geez, at least 15 years at this point. And the the reason that Mark is such a relevant guest on the show is in terms of environmental issues, they customarily come up in the context of commercial real estate transaction. So that's when folks like me and, and my office would get a call from a client or a lending institution with a question about some environmental risk that's inherent in the transaction. And Mark's perspective on this issue, I think, is so important because whether or not you're a practicing attorney, you could also be someone that's trying to get financing, someone that's trying to sell a property. It, it matters what the lending institution asks you to do you have to you have to comply with what the lending institution is is telling you that you you have to undertake and i think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that what you just said about how there is a federal regime in place essentially that dictates what the bank has to require so it's not like you can shop around and get a better environmental deal with with a different bank you all are subject to the same type of regulation did i did I add anything helpful to what you already said by that? <laughs> no, no, I think that, me, I, yeah. that's, a, that's a very good perspective. Uh, yeah. I, again, maybe to use a more concrete example, mm. you know, you have a $3 million loan. It's acquisition for prospective loan. Uh, it's acquisition financing, and you're going to be you know, trying to acquire, let's just say, the building behind me. You know, most banks are going to require, based on that property type, like a phase one. But, What's a phase one? So basically the ASTM phase one standard, so the environmental due diligence standard that's pretty much commonplace across the industry and has been, I think I'm dating myself a little bit, I apologize, but I think the first <laughs> phase one standard probably promulgated in, I'll say, 92-ish. And then there's also a counterpart to that. It's called the transaction ASTM transaction screen standard. And I think the way you can really sort of think of the two of them in, in comparison the TSA is more of like a phase one light. Okay. They do a okay. lot of same things. And again, there's a flexibility and same thing, you know, with how banks, you know, there's the ASTM standard, but I know a lot of my counterparts at other financial institutions, they may have, they may call their internal standard, you know, like a phase one plus because they may do other things as sort of standard practice. Um, just for example, you know, the phase one standard has um, additional, like optional things that you could do, like asbestos, lead paint, lead in drinking water, you know, those some, you know, there's a host of them, there's like seven or eight of them, that's pretty much standard, you know, in the ASTM uh, practice that says, you know, here's the normal things that you can do, well, here's the, you know, additional items of concern. 
Well, I, you know, we generally speaking would inc incorporate asbestos into all of our phase ones or the requests that we make to our vendors. Um, but lead paint, let's say, well, you may only be, you're not going to be asking about lead paint for your typical like retail or office building. But if you're doing multifamily lending, well, yeah, you are going to be asking your vendor to incorporate lead paint, um, you know, into that phase one standard, into that particular scope of work for that particular job. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily actually doing sampling, um, you know, doing the, the lead paint swabs or anything like that. Um, but they may be asking the property owner, the borrower, well, you know, what do you have for certificates of compliance? What do you have for any the result of any prior lead surveys? What do you have for results of any prior abatement actions? You know, those mm -hmm. types of things. But again, so it's really sort of case by case. It's sort of like a menu um, to say, okay, well, here's the type of property I'm dealing with. Here's the age of the property. Um, generally speaking, if you're post-1980, you're really not as worried about asbestos and lead paint. Um, because those things were, you know, phased out in the mid to late seventies. Um, but still, it's sort of a menu. You're looking at, okay, what's my loan amount? What's my property type? What are the issues that, you know, that that are going to be identified with this, this scenario? And you're trying to match or craft your due diligence that you're requesting your vendor to do um, to address the concerns at issue. When when you say vendor, what do you mean by that? So in the environmental context, you know, we're talking about your environmental consultant, um, okay. something which is defined as a quote-unquote environmental professional under the ASTM standards. So technically, you know, an environmental prof 99 times out of 100, you know, an environmental professional is going to be doing the phase one. Okay. Um, there's some whole sort of regular, you know, statutory regime on a federal level. If you mm -hmm. do a phase one, there's liability exemptions and whatnot. I can let Marissa speak to that if she wants to. It's probably more detailed than, than people and want. And we can put the audience to sleep immediately exactly. with that conversation. Exactly. <laughs> but, but, you know, where the rubber hits the road from a practical real life perspective, an environmental professional is going to be doing a phase one. Now, if we're talking about the transaction screen, again, I sort of refer to that as the phase one light. That does not need to be done by an environmental professional. You know, that is a defined term under Ooh. the phase one standard. And, you know, huh. that comes down to, you know, education or number of years experience. There's several different criteria. But reality is, from a bank's perspective, you know, you're, you're not, I don't want to say you're necessarily using mom and shop pops, uh, shops because some of those people do the best work. So, you know, I know for us, you know, we probably have a good 40, 45 um, pre-approved vendors on our, you know, on our quote-unquote list. Um, they do run, you know, and again, it, it's it's a geography issue. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you have a, a, a regional or national lending footprint, you need to have enough vendors to cover your various markets. Yep. Um, but by the same token, do I have anybody that could, you know, that's in Butte, Montana? No. And so, again, it, it's... You know, you, you try to have that mix. We have, I think we have a good mix of national vendors, regional vendors. And again, it's, you know, some guys that, you know, that work out of their house, the mom and pop shops. Because again, mm -hmm. some of those people, they know, you know, they may only work in a certain, you know, limited geography. But you know what? They know that geography. You know, and they, and they might have looked at the site previously as part of their professional career. Yeah, but that's a double-edged sword. You know, it's, we're given sort of. And that's some, something I actually probably should have mentioned also, you know, compared to, say, the appraisal field, okay, a bank cannot accept a borrower supplied appraisal. 
That's strictly prohibited by the yeah, regulations. Yeah, right, because it could be biased. Exactly. But in the environmental realm, where, again, things are not as prescriptive as they are with appraisal, we get borrower-supplied reports constantly, all the time. Yep. And like anything <clears throat> else in life, you have good lawyers, bad lawyers, good doctors, bad doctors, good architects, bad architects. Well, it's the same thing in the environmental industry. It's the same thing in the appraisal industry. So, you know, those borrower-supplied reports, some of them are fantastic. They answer all your questions. You don't have to order anything new. Good to go. Other instances, they raise more, you know, raise more questions than, than answers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I always take the mindset that we should be more willing to accept an existing report that a borrower had commissioned prior to their acquisition of the property versus a report that was done on behalf of a seller who was trying to get rid of their property. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, because in that context, you know, the bank and the, and the, the borrower at the time um, should have been on the same side of the fence because you want to identify issues and you don't want you know, somebody else's problem to become your problem. Yep. And for those listeners that, that still aren't quite sure how this phase one review fits in, I think the easiest way to explain it is the lending institution is, by virtue of lending money, taking on a risk and a liability that this phase one review and report provides the lender with an understanding of what those risks and liabilities are, number one. Number two, if they want to lend on the particular property, if the risks are too great, then the, mm -hmm. the bank can say, geez, forget it, we're out. And number three, if there's a, a way to remediate or, or cover the risk associated with a particular environmental issue associated with the property. Yeah, and, and identify so, issues that maybe <clears throat> may be able to flush out a little better by taking like a next step. Mm. Whether you know, you may be walking across a property and you actually see old monitoring wells. Well, where did these come from? You know, no idea who put them in. You don't know how old they are. Mm -hmm. Um you assume they're still viable. Um, but there may be issues on the property. So, you you know, that next scope, you know, that the end of the phase one may recommend, hey, we should sample these groundwater wells, these existing groundwater wells. Um, say the well, there aren't any wells on the property, but you have a property like the one behind me. You know, that's sort of automatic phase two. That's, you know, if you're going to be lending on a property like the one behind me, you know, you're going, you're going to want some subsurface data. Now, we're in 2023. You know, so you would assume that this property behind me has been investigated uh, quite comprehensively. You'd be surprised. Um, <laughs> sometimes, you know, it amazes me that, some, you know, properties, like I said, like the one behind me. Yeah, what know, is the property, property behind you? Huh? What is the property behind you for those that aren't watching us on YouTube? That is the former uh, Draper Loom Works. Uh, I'm not going to say where it is. It's actually okay. doesn't exist anymore. It was actually demolished in the summer okay. of 2022. But at one point in time, back in the day, um, it was the largest manufacturer of um, cotton and woolen looms in in the world. So for oh. listeners, it's a. It just looks like a very large mill. It looks like there's a lake or water body on one side a field on the other side and a farm or not farm a forest mm -hmm. wooded area in the back it is a it is a big mill a, it's, it's kind of mill. in an l shape mm -hmm. so 
from what I'm hearing, phase one is examine the property, figure out what's going on, figure out. Surficially examine the property. So, okay. So it's kind of get eyes on it. Is it worth putting money in? Is there an issue? Is there something that can be done to fix the issue? Mm-hmm. Or better flush out the issue. Okay. What happens next? Well, then you got to determine how big the issue is. Um, and that, I think, is another misconception. Maybe I should take a little bit of a step back. Um, oh, oh, the bank will never lend on a dirty property. That, that's not true. Um, you know, I've been doing this for a while. If we were talking, you know, 1992, 1993, um, yeah, banks were a lot, uh, were much more leery of potentially contaminated property than they are in 2023. Um, you know, we lend on quote unquote dirty property, um, all the time, just like I know a lot of my, you know, brethren across the industry do. The question becomes, well, what's the problem? How extensive is it? Have you actually defined the scope and extent? Um, what's it going to cost? Is mm-hmm. that cost viable or not? And who's paying for it? And yeah. when you say How dirty you property, are we talking like super fun site? Or yeah, I, mean, it, I guess Marissa, that's would you want to hop in end. on dirty property? That definition. Sure. I mean, Mark knows the answer to this as well, but yes, it could be a Superfund property. It could also be a property that's not as contaminated as something that's listed on Superfund. And I don't know, the question that I have in my mind is, is there a a threshold or written criteria that the industry uses to determine whether they're going to lend on a particular property? Or is it a narrative internal discussion and figuring it out based on experience and and uh, site-specific criteria. It's the latter. Um, everything <clears throat> okay. is case by case. Every, you know, every property is different. Yeah. Now, again, getting back to the Superfund comment, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. I think I've dealt with an actual federal Superfund site twice. Oh. Of, you know, 20,000 properties that I've wow. looked at. So that's, you know, that's not really the stuff that you're dealing okay. with on a day-to-day basis you're dealing with you know not us epa you're dealing with mass dep illinois epa um and actually epa in illinois is actually the state environment mm. so not mm-hmm. the um you know florida dep you're dealing with the state environmental agencies 99.5 percent of the time i didn't know that that's that's really interesting to me i had assumed that there's so many contaminated properties nowadays that dealing with a a superfund property would just be Mm run-of-the-mill no pun intended i've dealt with a few of them over the years it doesn't come up actually it's funny it comes up I don't want to say frequently, but when you are dealing with a Superfund site, it's usually an old um, DOD site. Okay, Department so of it's Defense. An old, it's an old, yeah, yeah, it's an old army base or something mm-hmm. like that where, you know, the, the property is conveyed with statutory liability exemptions and indemnit- statutory indemnities yeah. um, for the property owner. So you're usually, a, unless, you know, that, and again, you know, you know, old army bases, they're hundreds and thousands of acres, mm-hmm. maybe a Superfund site that have, you know, to some dumping or something that was going on, which was two miles away. It's still part of the army base, the former yep. army base, but it's you know nothing to do with the property that you're lending on. Um, 
So yeah, we've had a handful of those over the years, but those are actually pretty simple, like I said, because of the, the statutory liability exemptions and indemnifications that you get from the federal government that run with the land. Yeah, it must be nice. It's easy. <laughs> no, I mean, it must be nice to be the federal government just exempting oh, yeah, yourself. Yeah. Well, don't even get well, me started. Yeah, we all know. I mean, it, it, having a, a, uh, an indemnification, whether it's from the government, whether it's from a, a counterparty, a private, you know, it's all fine and dandy until you go to actually try to execute on it. That's right. And then all of a sudden, there's not enough money in escrow to deal with the, the remediation yeah. that's covered. Well, yeah, or it takes you two years to get back to you or, you know, what. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, that's why I like to have, again, when you're dealing with sort of We'll just call it more manageable, more sort of run-of-the-mill type issues. Oh, you know, there's, a, there's an area of here, you know, contaminated soil. There's a, a storage tank that we found. You know, it's active, but it leaked. We're going to take it out. Um, oh, we found, you know, a couple of abandoned underground storage tanks. Um, you know, you just try to define the extent of contamination as best you can. So, you know, it's going to cost 200000 So you think it's going to cost 400000 Um, And you set aside as part of the deal, that money is set aside and you provide, you know, give the borrower and sometimes it's the seller. Um, but you give a, a third, that third party, you know, six months, a year, two years, whatever it is, again, case by case, depending on what the extent of the problem is. But you give them some time to take care of the issue um, and they you know, submit their invoices and they get paid out of the escrow that's all that's been set up. Now, again, this, it, it, it's funny because you, a lot of people, oh, well, I got a phase one and it identified an issue. Well, when, we, when can we close? Well, well, you need to take that sort of next step and say, <laughs> Well, you have a problem, and Marissa's laughing because I'm sure yeah. she, you know, she's running this, you know, this issue all the time. Yeah. The phase one's not going to tell you like how bad it is. The phase one is going to tell you you may have an issue here. You have something that you need to look into a little bit more, and whether that again, my example before, you know, let's sample some existing groundwater wells that we found while we were walking across the property. Whether that's get you know hiring a, a drilling company, get a drill rig out there, poke a bunch of holes, take a bunch of soil and groundwater samples, you know that stuff takes time. Mm -hmm. um, but if the but that's what you need to do in order to identify how much is this going to cost. Um, and sometimes you might do that initial quote unquote phase two. You know you put in we'll just say you know you advance a half dozen borings, you put in a half dozen groundwater monitoring wells, you sample them. Oh. Now we actually found something. Now there might be a reporting obligation to a state mm. governmental agency. Um, you know, that may just now have identified the problem. You still don't know what the extent is. So you still now you may need to do yet another phase two to define the extent to get so you can now put a dollar amount on it. Hold on a second. When you say another phase two, does that mean the are you formally closing the first phase two and then starting it over again? Or are you just continuing? Oh. So, like, so like my example a second ago, so you put yeah. in six borings, you put in six wells, okay? Mm -hmm. And one well comes back, quote unquote, hot. Whatever mm -hmm. the contaminant was that you were worried about and were measuring for, you identified it at concentrations that exceeded the reportable quantity for that particular state environmental agency. Okay, well, now I got a problem. I don't, is this the only spot on the whole property that is an issue? How far does this, you know, how far is this contamination migrated? Well, now you have to do, put in another six wells, let's say, to mm -hmm. try to define what the extent is. 
Now, you hope the initial phase two comes back clean, but that doesn't happen all the time. Mark, what's the what's the percentage, just a, 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 a guesstimate here, what's the percentage of phase ones that come back clean? Ooh, um, hmm. That's actually a good question. I would say, well, you got to remember, and again, this is not a knock against environmental consultants whatsoever, but, you know, they obviously have an incentive to be somewhat conservative. Yep. Um, because, you know, they're already familiar with the property, the yep. idea being, well, well, if I recommend something, um, well, I'll be first in line to get that next phase of work. Yes. So the bank, you know, we take we ask our consultants to provide a risk rating that we define in our contract, um, and to provide recommendations. But maybe the better answer to your question is, we don't necessarily agree with those recommendations all the time. Yep. So the consultant may come back and say. You know, we recommend phase two, and that's going to cost, you know, 12, 15 grand, let's just say. We may look at it, our internal reviewers, all of whom were environmental consultants at one time, all of whom did phase ones earlier in their career. Um, they may say, yeah, this is too conservative. Um, we're not going to require our, we're not, we're not going to tell our lending team, our, our sales folks that they have to do this we're basically changing the recommendation from a lending perspective we're not going to require this okay but that you know that happens also um so i might say you know to throw out numbers maybe a third of phase ones come back with some sort of recommendation and i would say probably half of those we may not pass through to the business line will basically tell the business line they don't have to do it. That's a lot lower of a percentage than what I thought you were going to say. I thought it was going to be flipped with with two-thirds being you've got a problem, you've got to proceed with sampling. Well, but again, it gets back to sort of what is the scope of work. And again, mm. if you're talking about a transaction screen or you're talking about the phase one, you know, again, before I was mentioned, you know, the asbestos, the lead paint, the lead in drinking water. You know, do you have an on-site drinking water well? Yep. You know, versus municipal sewer. Um, septic. You know, a lot of, you know, some states have sort of independent, um, you know, septic inspection requirements if mm -hmm. it's a, you know, acquisition financing. You know, so it sort of depends on are you doing sort of the basic due diligence or are you doing more of an enhanced due diligence to address sort of these other added issues? That again, that are implicated sort of on a case by case basis. And I'll use I'll use asbestos as an example because this was actually a, actually I'll use asbestos and lead paint because really within the last two weeks I became familiar with a couple of uh, a couple of properties where there were issues. So we do a lot of construction lending. Um, sometimes we're not just doing ground up. You know, we're doing we're financing the gut rehab of a 40, 50, 80 year old building. Um, you know, there might be an old office building, you're converting it to residential, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're gutting it down to the studs and you're rebuilding. Okay, fine. So what we see quite a bit is that the asbestos and lead paint sampling that goes into the budget, the construction budget, those inspections generally are usually quite cursory in nature and really not adequate. Um, so commonly we'll say, you know, as part of our phase one, that's some of the questions that we would be asking for this particular project. Okay, well, you're doing this gut rehab. Where's your asbestos survey? Where's your lead paint survey? 
you know, and then they, uh, our phase one vendor would tell the bank, hey, you, you have these issues, you know, make sure these things have been factored in as a separate line item into your construction budget. Um, you know, you have the funds to do it. You just got to make sure the line of the dollar amounts are adequate. So became aware of a, a couple, fortunately, neither of these transactions were mine. Um, but talking to other people in the industry, I came, became aware of them. One particular transaction was like a 30-story office building that they, you know, they had to do a gut rehab on, um, the asbestos sampling uh, survey prior to construction uh, was very, very cursory in nature. They started opening up the walls and whatnot and ended up at the end of the day having like a $4 million asbestos abatement cost that oh they God. did not anticipate. Oh. Because, again, it's one of those things where you open up the, you know, somebody's walking <clears throat> walk into a property, abandoned property, again, like the one behind me, and you see, you know, everybody knows the asbestos where it's all hanging or, you know, falling off the pipes that are along the ceiling mm-hmm. and what. Nobody thinks about the stuff that's like inside the walls. Yeah. I mean, again, if you're gut, you know, you're gut rehabbing right down to the studs, some building, well, you're opening up the walls. So that deal ended up just completely going sideways because they didn't account for that issue adequately up yeah. front. Yep. Another project um, where lead paint sort of the same thing, where it was a gut rehab of an old mill into affordable housing, which you know we see all the time. Um, and you know, uh, the work was all done. Certificate of occupancy was issued by the local municipality. People moved in. And, you know, end up on the front page, you know, the top top fold of the local newspaper that four kids have lead paste. Well, lead oh, my paste God. Because they didn't they didn't abate what they should have abated or they didn't do a really messy job. <clears throat> so this, again, people it's think, terrible. oh, well, asbestos, ah, they haven't put asbestos, use asbestos or lead paint in you know, 40 years, 45 years. It's not an issue. It's still an issue today. It's surprising, but it's still an issue today. It's the old, oh, when are we going to run out of underground storage tanks? Well, you know, we still see underground storage tanks constantly. You know, at some point you think you're not going to see them anymore, but you still get them. Yeah. And a lot of times they're abandoned and nobody knew about them because somebody's walking around the property and saying, well, wait a minute, what's that vent pipe over there? And you stop poking around, you stop poking into the sort of the back room of the basement and moving yep. around with a bunch of boxes and whatnot. And boom, oh, here, here's an old oil, oil fired furnace that hasn't been used in 30 years. Yeah. That's tank's still outside. You know, and where, where I'm making faces and noises over oh. here when you're talking about lead paint and, and issues associated with asbestos abatement. But thank God these issues are being discovered, number one, for public health and safety, and number two, for the buyer. You, you, want, you want out of that deal unless there's available $40 million to somehow deal with, in your example, the asbestos issue. Yeah. If, but for the phase one, that's a good point. You're not, yeah. you're not finding these uh, environmental uh, health and safety issues. So yeah, they're like actually... The- they're yeah, like this fantastic. It was, you know, like a, we'll just say a $20 million construction budget, and they had a line item in that construction budget for, we'll say, $250,000 for asbestos abatement. And guess what? It wasn't $250,000. It ended up being $4 million. So yeah. that, that blows your budget. It really does. Woof. <laughs> yeah, I, just, the, <laughs> just the idea that you, oh my God, a nightmare. And I guess the, and I guess the takeaway is, these these issues take time. 
you know, it's not something where you can come to the bank and say, you know, three weeks before your PNS says that you're supposed to close and, oh, can you give me financing? Um, you know, that's not the reality. You know, there's a lot, when you're talking about commercial property, you're talking about a long, longer lead time than I think the vast yeah. majority of yep. people. Because again, the vast majority of people, what, what is their involvement with a bank when you're trying to get financing for real estate? It's your home. Yeah. It's your home. Yeah. It's a single family. That's yep. most people's experience. Oh, you know, I give them some of my, you know, let my last three paychecks and I would get an appraisal done and that takes a couple of weeks and boom, boom, boom. It's, easy. it's relatively easy and simple. It's not like that with commercial property and certainly not industrial property. There's a okay. long, much longer lead time yep. and there's a lot of boxes that need to be checked um, when you're going through your due diligence practices. Now, a lot, you would think a lot of these things are, again, if it's acquisition financing, the borrower doesn't own the risk yet, doesn't own the liability yet, you would think that you should be on sort of the same team, on the same side. Um, it's in his or her best interest to flush out these issues also. Um, but sometimes you get the, yeah, but I'm getting a great deal. Well, well yeah, why do you think you're getting a great deal? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, people yep. get emotional about real estate. They've always gotten emotional about yep. real estate, and they always will get emotional about real estate. So, you know, sometimes you're having to convey a message that the borrower doesn't want to hear. Um, they really don't want to hear the message when they're providing you with a report that maybe they had engaged or a report that the seller had handed them that says, oh, everything's fine, there's no problem. And then you come back and say, well, yeah, that used to be a gas station. Yep. Um, and that issue is not reflected anywhere in the report that was handed to that the borrower handed to you. Yeah, I'm not saying that that's their fault. I'm certainly not saying that they're trying to put put something over, you know, on the bank. But the vast majority of borrowers, you know, when they say, "Oh, it's a phase one," it, it, that that's the those are the words on the title of this fat document that they have. You know, yep. it doesn't really mean anything to. They don't understand the process. They don't understand what sort of, and they shouldn't. Um, what goes into it. Um, they just know that they need this because the bank asked me for it. Right. Well, again, if it's acquisition financing, sometimes, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to protect you too. Yep. Well, this ended up being a uh, tutorial in ASTM and phase one, phase two land. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I could talk about this for a long time, but I think 30 minutes is probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you again, Mark. I've, this was a whole introduction to things I did not know existed, frankly, this morning. Um, and hopefully our listeners who may have dealt with this or heard of this or... Um, or want to get into the I was industry. Say, yeah, yeah, who are going to be dealing with this in the future. This might be a good introduction to them. Um, if you have any questions or comments about this or if this is something that you've experienced or... As we do in Rhode Island, if you know somebody who's dealt with this, yeah. <laughs> reach out to yeah, us. And that's a huge, just one final thought on yeah. that, Clarissa. Maybe I'm giving a shameless plug to my friend for the last 15 years. Um, but when you are, you know, if you're contemplating the acquisition of a property, you know, such as the one behind, having good counsel that knows what the hell they're doing is so crucially important. You know, an attorney may be, a, you know, hold themselves out as a real estate attorney. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're an environmental attorney. 
um, it's a whole different world than sort of your standard real estate stuff. It's, yeah. you know, it is such a specialty. Um, you really need people that know what they're doing when it comes to environmental. Mark, I will take that shameless plug. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> and follow up the shameless plug with the email. It is marissa at desatelbrowning.com. Dot com. Yes. Yes. Mark, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast before, don't. but this is every every episode. Clarice, I love you. I get she it wrong cannot get every the email time. correct. It's it's a thing. It's uh let me let me just do it. It's Marissa at desatelbrowning.com. Let us know if you have questions. I know Mark, you're not providing your your detailed employment uh, information, but if anyone has any follow up questions or has a deal that they need some help with or are looking for financing, please get in touch with me again, Marissa at desatelbrowning.com, and I'm happy to share your questions or or other information directly with Mark. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Environmentally Speaking. If you're in need of an environmental attorney, we are here to help. Call us at 401-477-0023 or visit our website at www.desatellaw.com. That's www.desatellaw.com.